Recollections of Life in Ohio from 1813 to 1840 by William Cooper Howells. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Sue Anderson. Chapter 7 Buying a Farm, a Log Cabin, Lighting and Ventilation, the Cabin Chimney, a Neighbor's Family. It had always been a doctrine in the family that we ought to move on to a farm, and father had looked forward to the time when he could buy a farm and devote himself to the cultivation of it. Why he thought of this I cannot guess, unless there is a natural feeling in the civilized man that always regards a farm as an established home and seeks to fix itself to the soil somewhere. Father was always talking to us about it, though I know if he had had a farm given to him, ready stocked, he would scarcely have been able to live on it. Yet he would seriously talk of leasing a quarter of a section of school land in a state of nature and clearing it up. In pursuance of this idea, he bought on credit, making a first payment of all he could rake and scrape together, forty acres of land for six hundred dollars. It was situated on the point of a hill above a little stream called Wills Creek, about five miles from Steubenville. Twenty-five acres was the extent of the available land in the lot, the rest being stony hillside on which nothing but trees would grow. And, being one of the first places settled in the country, the land was worn out and hopelessly poor. The man who had cleared it had planted an apple orchard and peach orchard of five or six acres, so that, when there was a fruit season, there was plenty of apples and peaches. He had improved it with a log barn and two log cabin houses, but he had cut every stick of timber off the land that could be worked into staves and shingles or rails. The two former he sold in town, and the latter he omitted to make after his first fences, so that his successors had little else than the ground to work with. Father bought it of a man who lived in town and had taken it on a poor debt, and the man then on the place was about to leave because he could not pay for it, nor even pay the rent after he became a tenant on it. Sometime in September, as I remember, father and I went one afternoon to see the place, which made for me a most delightful trip. The tenant was living upon it. On that day he was away from home, and we only saw his family. His wife entertained us with a description of the place, and treated us kindly, but she evidently felt the humiliation of their situation at being obliged to leave it, though it was not worth their while to stay. They were to leave in the spring, and as we wanted to move out that winter, it was agreed that they should take one of the houses and we the other. Father got some repairs done on the one we were to occupy, so as to make it a little more habitable by the addition of glass windows, for it had previously been lighted by leaving the door open, in addition to a four-light window with greased paper for glass, and the opening of the great chimney at the end of the single room, down which the daylight flowed in goodly quantity. It may seem a strange way of living now, but it was very common for the log cabins to have no windows whatever. In extremely cold weather, the door would be closed, and likewise at night, 
but mostly by keeping a good fire the door could be left open for light and ventilation and the chimneys were so wide and so low very often not as high as the one-story house that they afforded as much light as a small window these chimneys were always outside the house at one end and it was very common for them never to be finished or built up beyond the fireplace the manner of building them was to cut through the logs at the gable end a space of six or eight feet wide and five or six feet high and logs were built to this opening like a bay window this recess was then lined with a rough stone wall up as high as this opening from that point a smokestack was built of small sticks split out of straight wood and laid cob-house fashion to the height desired and then plastered inside and out with clay held together by straw a very common event was for these chimneys to take fire in which case it was necessary to use water bountifully or pull them down ours had so settled away from the house that we steadily expected it to pull itself down but like the tower of pisa it stood against all the gravity that affected it i suppose till the house went also the repairs delayed our moving till after new year's eighteen nineteen from the time of the purchase till we moved i made frequent trips to the farm always on foot but i was never tired of going i stayed sometimes overnight and was greatly taken up with the people i would meet there i could talk about town to the boys and their and their mother's stories of the country were charming to me while the nearly grown-up girls one of whom was very pretty could talk most entertainingly the second daughter had a fund of stories that belonged to the north of ireland that land where the irish and the scotch characters are so wonderfully blended about witches wizards ghosts and fairies that she never wearied of telling nor i of hearing and when we moved out to the place i was sure to be at our neighbors every evening if mother would let me hearing these tales till i would be afraid to go from one door to the other father still remained in town working in the factory coming home on saturday afternoons my duties consisted of feeding the cow and getting wood for the fire which in very cold weather was about all i could do as i was not quite twelve years old nor over the average size i had this wood to carry or drag on a small sled from the woods and uphill at that though i availed myself of all the broken rails along the fences for what supply they would yield hard work as this was i was greatly delighted with the country just before we moved out my uncle powell a brother-in-law to father and his family who had stopped on their way from england near richmond virginia long enough to spend all the money they had came to steubenville and as he had engaged a farm that he could not enter upon until spring he took the house we lived in he however had a team of horses and an old stage-coach in which the family had travelled from virginia that still bore the lettering richmond and staunton mail stage which was rather a stunning thing in itself while it served them some of the purposes of a wagon when we moved we used this to transport the family and most of the goods by making repeated trips 
On the last trip out, as it was late at night, the man who drove the wagon stayed till morning. After unhitching, he left the coach standing in the lane, where it terminated on the brow of a very steep hill. It had not stood there long till an enterprising old sow, making a survey of the machine, got her nose under a wheel when it started down the hill. We heard the rumbling and just got out in time enough to see it going over a grade of 35 degrees and landing in a thicket of bushes. The next day, after great labor, the running gears were got up, but the body was a wreck and was left there, in which situation we children made many imaginary trips in it between Richmond and Staunton. The precaution of putting a chalk under the wheels of this coach would have saved it, of course. This was in midwinter, and very disagreeable weather, under which the new place could have had but little charm for my poor mother. Her heart must have sunk as she encountered the labor of reducing to order the dirt and confusion that reigned in the place, and novelty lent it no charm for her, however we children may have enjoyed it. As showing the character of the country at that day, our neighbor was in debt, and largely for drink. He had but little, and was sued for something that he could not pay, while he did not want his house stripped, and, as at that time it was the practice to imprison for debt, when the execution came, he refused to give up his property, and went to jail. In a quiet way soon after, one of the neighbors, who was comfortably off, took away most of his goods that were subject to execution, and kept them out of sight. As father and I were coming out of town the Saturday after that, a tavern-keeper by the name of Howie, who kept a public-house on the way, stopped father to inquire about our neighbor, and remarked that he had a claim against him for drink, which he meant to try and collect. Father hinted that the man had no money, no, he said, but they have some feather beds that will sell, and the children, he thought, could as well sleep on straw. This I told the wife as soon as I got home, and the next day I found a feather bed hid in the bushes. The whiskey bill was not collected. Our neighbor remained in jail till the creditor, who had to board him, got tired of his share of it. Chapter 8 Moving the Cow and the Pig Sugar Camps, Game, The Old Mill, Peach Brandy, Peach Leather, Woodmanship, Old Fashioned Axes, A New Pony, Going to Mill, Ghosts and Panthers. Our moving was done pretty leisurely, and occupied several days, and it seems to me now that I did a pretty good share of the labor, considering my age. Father, though skillful enough in his business, or with his machinery, was much wanting in the contrivance which is one half of work, and nearly all planning was left for mother and me. In the way of livestock we had a cow and a pig. These were removed on two different days, and the performance was about all I was equal to. The cow I undertook first, but she would not be driven more than a short distance out of town till she would turn on me and run back. After one or two trials, I put a rope on her horns and led and drove her as the case required. Even then she would try to run back, 
and it put me to my utmost effort to get her over the five miles I had to take her. Several times she started to run, when she and the rope and I might have been seen flying over the ground at a fearful rate. I could run nearly as fast as she could at any rate, and with her help, when holding on to the rope, I could keep upon my feet for a pretty good race, at the end of which I would bring her up or turn her on the route and keep her going till she would catch me unawares and run into a lane or a piece of woods. With fences on both sides I got along finely, but if a fence was wanting, as was common then, it was hard work. I had one long hill to go down where the road was through the natural forest, and here Bossy or Suki, and I had it nip and tuck. She would start for a run, and I would make for a tree against which I would draw the rope, and, if possible, make a turn and thus snub her. If I could throw myself past the upper side of the tree and swing round below it, I had her completely in my power. After she would quiet down, I would loosen my hold and start on. Along the creek bank I got on pretty well, except that the creek had to be forded five times, and I had no alternative but to wade through it and thoroughly wet my feet. As the cow was tired as well as I, she went up the hill to our house with commendable moderation, after we had nearly doubled the distance in the many races we had. The pig, which was pretty well out of pighood, and attained that indefinable stage of swine life known as shoat, was transported on another day by the same process as far as it would apply. But the pig, having no horns, I tied him on the Irish plan of a noose drawn under his hind leg just above the knuckle. By this I could hold him and guide him after a fashion, though, having a will of his own, he would run through all the holes and corners and under the sloping stakes of the Virginia fences. In this case the fences were my dread, for it seemed as if he ran under every stake he came to, compelling me to let go the rope and pass it under the stake into my other hand, which had to be done carefully, lest he should escape. Take it all in all, this mode of driving a pig, which is the orthodox mode in Ireland, is not the most delightful labor by the side of an American stake and rider fence, and for a small boy it is provocative of ill-tempered expressions and many tears of anger. The country where we lived is very hilly and rough, and the land generally poor. The prevailing timber was oak of various kinds, with occasional strips of maple forest on the creek bottoms and on some of the hilltops, where the land was rich and fertile. The prevailing rock is sandstone, which pretty well covers the hillsides with its fragments, while the heavier rocks outcrop along the ravines and precipices. Coal is abundant, and near it is limestone and marl, where the land is rich and where the maples grow. Our place had no sugar trees, and thus one great source of happiness was cut off, though I found frequent occasion for visiting the camps of the neighbors. To a boy from a town, hardly any place could be more enchanting than a sugar camp, where the big boys stay all day and boil the sugar water, having their meals brought to them, 
and sleep at night in an open-faced camp before a big fire on a heap of straw. I looked upon boys whose fathers owned sugar-tree land as thrice blessed, and longed for the change that would give us a camp. But our rough place had the advantage of being surrounded with hemlock and pine trees and laurel thickets, where there were pheasants, ruffled grouse, and rabbits that I would hunt most enthusiastically, trying to kill the pheasants with stones, for they would sit on the trees about as long as I was disposed to throw stones at them, if I only kept up a noise by singing or whistling. Rabbits I did manage to catch after a while, but the first one I caught with my hands as it was running, which was a rare feat and not likely to be repeated in a lifetime, a dog was after it, and as it was doubling on him it ran past me, when I sprang at it and in a few jumps caught it. This was an event of vast importance. At the foot of our hill was a sawmill and flouring mill, where we got flour and cow feed, and where I made acquaintances, and heard many a long story of hunting in early times, and of voyages down the river. But the charm of the region was the old mill, a short distance above the others. The house, mill, and old still house were all empty, and, of course, subject to endless investigation in daytime, while they were a terror at night by reason of the ghosts that were said to harbor in them. Two fields adjoining the mills were also abandoned, in which the cows, not fenced up, would run, and from which we would sometimes drive them after nightfall, at the imminent risk of being attacked by ghosts. My sister Anne, as next in age to me, was frequently my companion in my adventures over these odd places and the hills and valleys through which the cattle would stray, and it is wonderful what strolls we would have and how we clambered over rocks and through thickets. In one of these fields there was a large patch of thyme growing that had spread from an old garden. In summer, being long in bloom, it was very pretty, and with its flowers and fine odor it remains a picture to me yet. I often go back to Kastner's old mill on a little bunch of thyme, and never see any without going there. At the old stillhouse there was a great heap of peach stones, amounting to many bushels, the refuse from the manufacture of peach brandy, an article which in that day was abundant and cheap. When the country was new, peaches were the easiest fruit to raise. They came forward very quickly, bearing in three or four years from the planting of the stone, and they produced so abundantly when the frost did not kill them, that they were freely given away to those who would eat or dry them, and sold at ten or twelve cents a bushel to the distillers, who worked them up into brandy, thus assisting to keep up the supply of spirits, then regarded as a necessary of life, almost as much as bread. The first year we went to the farm, the frost destroyed the entire crop of fruit, especially peaches, but the second year, 1820, we had an unlimited supply. To dispose of some of them, we got a neighbor to take a four-horse wagon load of them to the Steubenville market. These I managed to nearly sell out, 
some for twenty-five and more for eighteen cents a bushel, the transaction yielding a mere trifle over expenses. We dried them, however, and worked them up into peach leather, a very nice preparation of the pulp of the peach, spread on a board and dried in the sun, and ate them from morning till night. The finest varieties of budded peaches now known do not exceed in quality the common natural growth from the seed of that time without any particular culture. There then grew in the woods an abundance of wild grapes that were mostly of good quality and some very superior in size and flavor. I believe some excellent varieties might have been brought forward from them, but that opportunity has gone by. During the remainder of the winter of 1819, after we moved, there were some weeks of rather hard weather, and though when the weather was mild I could manage pretty well, with what help my brother Thomas and my sister Anne could give me to keep up the fires, it came rather hard upon us when there was a deep snow to contend with, and the dry, light limbs and bark were covered and wet, and the old rails in the same condition. So I undertook to keep up the supply by cutting down trees. Of those that were near the house, almost all were too large or too tough for me to manage. Among them I found one that was hollow, and that I set about cutting down, thinking it would be easily handled but it was tougher than if solid, and a fearful spell of beavering I had with it before it was down, so that I could get at the tops. To add to my difficulty, the axe was a poor one, very heavy and very dull. Such an axe as we would now buy for a dollar, ready ground and light, was unknown then. They seldom weighed less than five pounds, and were ill-shaped besides." For a boy of less than twelve years this was really too much, for it was as much as I could well do to swing the axe in a horizontal direction. Still less could I add force to the blows and sink the axe beyond what the impetus of its own weight would do. I can yet remember how hard it was, and with what labor I cut that hollow tree down. The first day it was only partly down when I adjourned to grind the old axe at the mill. My brother, a hopeful and willing little chap, went with me to turn the grindstone. If I held on the axe so as to grind it, he couldn't turn, and if I turned, he couldn't hold the axe, but I held it on pretty steep, and as I thought put a good edge on it. It was really so blunt that it wouldn't cut anything though in order to make it perfect I had whetted it up with father's razor strop. But somebody assisted me, and I got it so that I could cut a little, and we got the treetop niggled into such pieces as we could drag home up the hillside. For some reason that I do not remember, I took the axe to town and got a blacksmith to upset or dress and temper it. After this was done, it was so thick on the edge that it took two days to grind it to what we thought sharp. Thus we worked along through the winter, and with an occasional confiscation of a rail, we made out to keep up our fires. With the opening of the spring of 1819, I entered upon a most delightful round of novelties. We had the ground of one or two fields plowed, and we planted them in corn and other spring crops, including garden-making, 
which father took to himself as his specialty, working at it on Saturdays when home from town. Father bought a black pony bearing the name of Paddy that was about as tough and lazy a lump of horse flesh as I ever saw. He was one of the ponies that the boatmen who made trips down the river in flat boats to New Orleans and returned overland were in the habit of buying of the Choctaw Indians to ride home on. This one had been ridden home by a man who was prepared to sell him cheap, and I think father bought him for $28. But he served me as a horse, and for hacking about and going to mill, he did very well, as he would carry three bushels of wheat and me on the top of it, or as many of the children as we could pile on. And as it turned out to be a very dry season, it fell to my lot to go to the distant mills to get grinding done, and Patty and I made many a mile of moderate travel in Jefferson County. At the mills we had to wait our turns, and often we would have to leave our grist, and go after it another day by appointment, sometimes more than once. The weather was fine, the roads were good, there were plenty of apples in the orchards and nuts in the woods by the way, where they were always free to the passer-by, and all in all I really enjoyed going to the mill till the cold weather came on in the fall. Then Paddy took his time, and neither coaxing nor driving would move him beyond a slow walk, and the fact that I was almost freezing never gave him any concern. My only resource, therefore, was to get off and walk by his side, I was often benighted in getting home when I had to run the gauntlet of various terrors, a graveyard or two, the many stories of ghosts and goblins fresh in my memory, besides a story vouched for by several big boys that a panther had been heard screeching in the woods and laurel thickets. If I had a load, I proceeded in utter silence, of which Paddy took advantage by choosing his own gait. If light, I would make all the speed I could. One night, my brother Tom and I had been to town together, riding double on Paddy. When we reached the top of Sugar Hill, we had to get off and walk down, as it was too steep for both to ride down in the dark, and we were in danger of slipping over the horse's head. It was a frosty autumn night, and the saddle had got very cold while we were off, so that neither of us wanted to sit on it, preferring the horse's warm back. We drew Paddy up by a big log that we could just find in the starlight, and instead of getting upon him while standing on the log, we opened an argument as to which should ride behind. The panther story was usually present with us, but we had forgotten it just then, and we grew pretty loud in our dispute, when, as Burns says, something got up and gee a croon or, more properly, a yell, not very far from us. It was an owl, as I now suppose, but then it was a panther. The argument dropped in a second. Tom vaulted into the saddle as the place of safety, and I took the warm seat behind with all the dangers of an additional passenger uninvited. Short and few were the prayers we said, and Paddy was put to his best paces up the creek, which we had to cross five times, but at the first crossing he persisted in drinking, regardless of all the terrors of our situation. Chapter 9. Amateur Farming, 
wheat harvest, threshing with the flail, winnowing, snakes, killing a copperhead, pigs killing snakes, pigs in the woods, their veracity and ferocity, pigs naturally decent, birds, gunning, pheasants, their habits and tricks, a family dog, a brown smell. The fall before we moved out, father got a man to put in five acres of wheat, which did tolerably well and afforded us a supply of bread immediately after harvest. This wheat we had to harvest in July, and to us it was a new thing to have the gathering of the ripe grain as our task. But then we did it like the rest of our farming, hired the most of it. Father thought it best to get this wheat all cut in one day, so he got force enough to do it, had not a thunderstorm come up, which broke in upon the time so that there was work for two men the second day. But we had all the work of a harvest day, as if it had been a manorial estate. We had one man to cradle, another to rake and bind, and two to reap with sickles. We had a big dinner and lunches in the forenoon and afternoon, and the longest imaginable stories told at intervals of rest and during the thunderstorm. But we got the wheat duly housed, after which came the threshing and cleaning. The usual way of threshing then was with a flail, and the tenth bushel was the common price for that work. We got most of ours threshed, and I pounded out some of it myself, as well as giving my head sundry pults. Our manner of cleaning the wheat from the shaft was very primitive. It consisted of passing the wheat and shaft through a coarse sieve or riddle upon the barn floor, while two persons took a sheet between them, and by a particular flapping of the sheet produced a breeze that blew the shaft away. It was very laborious, but was the only method in use, except by the larger farmers who trod out the grain with horses and cleansed it with a fanning mill. Among the features of the country and place where we lived, snakes were prominent. The stony soil seemed to favor them, as it was warm and dry, and afforded shelter. Rattlesnakes had pretty well disappeared, but black snakes, a kind of small anaconda, were plenty, and in the streams were water snakes beyond count, a terror to boys, who would not bathe in them unless it was very warm when snakes were risked, as they would have been if they had been alligators but the copperheads were the really dangerous serpents of that time and locality. They were numerous, too, and great care was necessary to avoid them. They harbored under logs and stones, in stumps and among weeds, rarely in the grass, but always around barns and stables. I killed several of them close by our house and one in the garden where he had made himself comfortable under the dry pea home. Mother happened to see him when she was gathering peas and called me. I came with a hoe, and after raking the stuff off him, where he lay coiled and quiet, I let drive, cutting him into several pieces, and spattering my hands and face with his blood and juices, which I supposed to be poisonous, and washed off in mortal fear of soon following the snake. One morning my brother Joe, who was a little fellow, stood by mother as she was milking near the barn, and told her there was something pretty there. She looked around and was horrified to see him gently touching a sleeping copperhead with his toe. This fellow was waked up with a club. 
They were most dangerous in the harvest fields, where they would get under the shocks of grain, among the stubble, and even into the sheaves. It was customary then to cut oats with a cradle, and leave them lying in the swath a few days to make them thresh easy. Under these swaths the copperheads were sure to gather, where they would frequently bite men who were taking up the oats. Hogs were the natural enemies of all kinds of snakes, and they devoured them with a relish. They never seemed to hesitate as to what kind of snakes they were either, and would take a copperhead on the half-shell and squirming with the most perfect nonchalance, and never appeared to suffer any inconvenience from their poison. Whether they handled them too adroitly to be bitten, or the bite failed to hurt them, I don't know. When a pig got a snake, it was not long till he would get one end of the serpent in his mouth and the other end under his forefoot. We had one old sow that had a tooth for all sorts of eatables, dead or alive, whether it was a nest of eggs, a brood of young chickens, a family of goslings, or a lamb. Snakes appeared to be a special weakness with her, and I supplied her with many a one. The pigs of that day were a kind of wild beast. The breed was very different from anything we have now. They were active, enterprising, and self-reliant, and all they asked was a free range of the woods, though they could at all times be tamed by food. Indeed, their stomachs got them into most of the tight places they ever got into, even into the slaughter pen in the fall. It was quite common in favorable seasons for them to become fat enough for meat in the woods on acorns and nuts without any corn, though it was deemed advisable to pen them up and feed them corn for a few weeks before killing. The growing stock always boarded themselves, except in winter, when they would get corn enough to bring them home. The usual practice was to build them a hut of logs outside the fields where they would sleep and shelter from storms. Here they were fed and trained to rendezvous, so as to keep them within reach. The young ones were always marked by notches or crops on the ear, each farmer having some special way of marking them. They were never fattened to weigh anything like the hogs now raised. The meat was thought to be sweeter when not fed so highly. This is probably the case, as they were nearer to the state of the wild boar, which is so very delicate. They were much smaller animals, rarely weighing over a hundred pounds. In their habits they were ravenous to an extreme, and even ferocious. Their voracity knew no bounds, and they would kill and eat up the young poultry and lambs on a farm without any scruple. The worst were the old breeding sows. Our snake-eating sow would seize a lamb at any time she could get at one. Sometimes another sow's brood would make a light meal for her. The pig's redeeming virtue was faithfulness to each other, and they would gather for the common defense whenever one of them was in trouble, and never deserted him as long as they could squeal, though they might utilize his remains if he died in the struggle. In this half-natural state, the pig is rather respectable in his general bearing. He is cleanly, social, faithful, and if well-fed is well-behaved. I often noticed their habits of sleeping in the general bed, that they packed very closely and alternated nose and tail, and if it was cold and rainy, the question as to which should sleep inside or undermost 
usually occupied the night. End of section 4